Okay, hello and welcome to this final uh, panel session of the day on supporting green industries. Thanks very much to those in the room and in the overspill room and to all of those uh, watching online. My name is Tom Sass. I'm an associate director here at the IFGI Lead Our Net Zero programme. So Ed Miliband has just set out Labour's pitch there, uh, what, what it sees as the opportunity for using public investment to drive green jobs and industries sort of following in the, the footsteps of uh, the US and the EU. Uh, others have raised concerns about that kind of green bazooka approach and sort of argued that it could be wasteful of public money. So in March, Jeremy Hunt criticised what he called the massively distortive uh, Biden uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Rishi Sunak, when he was asked about this at the Liaison Committee yesterday, was sort of asked about whether he's worried about what's going on elsewhere. He said it's right that other countries are catching up with what we've done, so he didn't seem overly concerned. Um, the government published its own net zero growth plan, along with a, a whole bevy of other documents. I think it was sort of 3,000 pages in total on Green Day in, in March. Uh, and sort of set out some sort of, uh, sort of detail on how it hopes to sort of drive private investment through signals and, and focus on, on particular areas. And Grant Shapps in particular has been talking about removing blockers like permitting and grid connections. So what is the best approach for the UK in terms of making the most of the net zero transition? Uh, how should we think about the competing aims of reducing emissions uh, and boosting domestic jobs and industries? And how can government and public investment work best with the private sector? Um, we have a fantastic last panel here to discuss all of that. So Michael Liebreich is chairman and CEO of Liebreich Associates. Uh, many of you will know him as one of uh, the UK's leading thinkers on clean energy. He founded Bloomberg NEF, and he's the host of the excellent Cleaning Up podcast, which I highly recommend. Um, Elisabetta Cornago is a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform, has come over from Brussels to be with us. She works on EU climate and energy policy from an economics perspective and previously worked at the OECD and the IEA, the International Energy Agency. Josh Garman is executive director of the European Climate Foundation and he oversees ECF strategies and grant making. And Josh previously worked for Greenpeace, IPPR and was a political advisor for the Labour Party. And Giles Wilkes, uh, our very own Giles Wilkes, is a senior fellow here and was a former special advisor to Theresa May and Vince Cable and has written a lot for us on industrial policy. Before I turn to the panel, I'm just going to hand over to Amanda Tickle, who's head of uh, tax and trade policy at Deloitte, for a quick introduction. Tom, it's a pleasure to be here to deliver some of my perspective on the UK's approach to the green transition. And I think what we've heard today already is this is certainly one of the big public policy challenges of our time. Certainly probably the biggest I'm going to live through and be leading for Deloitte from a tax and trade perspective. So as head of tax policy, I'm often asked by our businesses, um, how should the government use the tax levers it's got? at its disposal to help us achieve um, this green transition. Um, and, and generally, it is about regulation, but also about taxes and incentives. So about the sticks and the carrots and how they can fairly and clearly be applied. The UK has actually got a pretty strong track record of applying tax, in, uh, tax incentives. 
And one of the best examples is cars. I was thinking about here, there's been a real array. Some might say a bit of a scattergun approach, but it seems to have worked, um, of benefits, incentives, reliefs, and a combination of taxes. So you know, there were up to 2,500 of grants for cars, 350 pounds for home charging points, full road tax reliefs. Um, and the list went on, in particular, big discounts in um, company car fleet taxation, which has led to um, more mass purchasing of EVs. Um, and this, coupled with the heavy use of fuel duties for petrol and diesel, um, really sort of has started to shift the balance, obviously, as well as consumer sentiment in terms of wanting to do the right thing and buy an electric vehicle which led to the latest stats that last year, 23% of new cars sold were EVs. So something must have been going right. Um, however, a lot of these reliefs and centres have started to be withdrawn um, with the current pressure on public spending. <clears throat> so the question is, is that too soon? Other countries have gone even faster and further. Um, one example is Norway. They completely removed the VAT charge of 25% on all EVs. And last year, their stat is a lot better. They actually sold 88% of all their new cars, and they were all EVs. So they really have made a massive difference. It wasn't expensive, but it achieved the aim they set out to. So what's next? Well, we heard today that innovation is one of the real keys to this green transition. So is the UK a good place to invest and innovate? Undoubtedly, from my perspective in tax, the increase in corporation tax to 25% has made the UK less competitive internationally. But you must look at the tax system as a whole. And we have actually got very generous relief and incentive systems in the UK, in particular for innovation. It's really targeted towards innovation. So there are generous R&D reliefs for SMEs and large companies, as well as a patent box regime. And the latest forecasts show that this is going to be worth uh, 10 billion a year when taken together in incentivizing and giving those tax reliefs to companies. So whilst there's a bigger tax rise, um, it can be completely offset if you're innovative. So there is also an array, as I said, of grants and subsidies um, available for companies if you can find them. But I also want to pick up on the international dimension because today most companies are mobile and always are interested in where they should make their investment choices. And this is one of the top questions we're being asked at Deloitte. You know, what actually is in the Inflation Reduction Act in the US? Well, it is enormous and it's uh, certainly going to do a good thing, which is, I hope, really um, mobilize the green transition for the globe. Um, but it does uh, provide a competition to, uh, to the UK in terms of incentives. Now, the UK doesn't have the... It's probably a trillion dollars, actually, if you add up Inflation Reduction Act, Chips and Science Act, the infrastructure measures, a trillion dollars, massive amount of money that the UK just doesn't have to spend. Saudi Arabia is spending a similar amount on its new city in the desert, and the EU Green Deal is probably going to be about a trillion euros when you add all, up, add all the subsidies up. So there's many trillions out there. And uh, so, so what it means for me is these numbers are absolutely enormous and they will make a difference. Um, but what they've done and what I think the learning is, is they've packaged up and targeted their incentives and tax reliefs in a way that is easy to understand. So they made it 
easy to understand for businesses and, com and, and consumers, actually. Um, they've made it easier to communicate as a package for business, um, and they've made it easier for businesses to quantify so that they can assess their business cases. And for me, that, that piece about communication and certainty and clarity is something that we could take forward. So with that opener, um, I am really fascinated to hear what the panel's got to say, and I'm going to hand back to you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. That's um, <laughs> set us up really well. And thank you again to Deloitte for making this uh, conference possible. So how this is going to work, uh, I'm going to start with some questions for my panel, but we'll have plenty of time for questions from you um, at the end. Uh, for those in the room, but also those online, do keep those coming in on Slido uh, and do tweet your thoughts and reflections at IFG Net Zero. Uh, Michael, I'll start with you. Um, so can you set out what you see as the significance of what, what's been happening in the US and the questions that that can pose for the UK in the context of this Net Zero transition? Okay. Um... It's a great question. How many hours have I got? <laughs> but, you know, when I first saw the, the IRA and the assessment of the IRA was that it was going to be 380, I think it was, billion dollars. Uh, and I thought, well, it's going to be about, you know, eight or nine years. So that's about 40 billion a year. I mean, it's smaller than the US food supplement industry. Why is everybody getting so excited? Um, but a couple of then I, then I sort of changed that view. Um, you know, sadly, Twitter never forgets, but I did change that view because, <laughs> first of all, it is uncapped. So it could be a lot more. It is possible that it becomes a lot more. Um, it is also simple um, in that, you know, if you do X, you get Y. You just get the money, as opposed to the, this very European approach saying sort of, uh, you know, if you do X, then uh, each country has to put a pro forward a proposal uh, within the next however many years uh, for how they want to incentivize, and uh, they may or they may not, and it may be highly bureaucratic, and so on, so on, so on. Um, and, um, and so it, it, it could be very, very substantial, and uh, demands a response uh, partly because it is around what happens in the US, but it's even got some things like you can export the results. So it's very interesting that you would not be able to pass any legislation in the US that said, well, we, you know, we will hose billions of dollars uh, globally at, for instance, the developing world to help them with their climate response. But actually, if those countries buy products or even commodities out of the US, then they would be subsidized by means of the IRA. So there could be an enormous transfer, completely off the radar screen. Nobody probably, uh, or very few people realized that that was there. So very, very substantial. Um, a couple of uh, caveats. One is that um, some of the things in it are highly, 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 highly distortive. So Jeremy Hunt was correct that some of it is very distortive. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I had on my podcast a chap who wants to make synthetic methane in the US and then import it into Germany. And you say, well, that's fine. Germany needs natural gas. Here's a synthetic methane and so on. The subsidy via doing that in the US, because you're generating, well, you're using uh, IRA-subsidized solar panels or wind uh, uh, turbines, perhaps, to make IRA-subsidized electricity, which you use to electrolyze IRA-subsidized hydrogen, and you capture IRA-subsidized carbon from a power station, fossil carbon, and you combine those in 
uh, Sabatier process, probably subsidized by maybe the Infrastructure Act or a regional support in whichever state you're in or whatever, and you collect just the IRA bits of that, just to get to the port, in, or just to get to the synthetic methane in the US, and that would be $60 per million BTU. And for those of you who are not energy wonks, if there are any in the audience, um, a BTU of natural gas in the US, Henry Hub, the value is $2.15. $60 of subsidy, $2 of commodity value. And remember, this is not even clean, right? Because the, the, the carbon that's captured is actually from another power station. And then they want to ship it to, the, to Europe, pretend it's clean, and get more subsidies to import it into uh, Wilhelmshaven and, and, and so on and so on. So this is very distortive, and it's uncapped and so on. So the second caveat, though, which we should all bear in mind, is that it's not obvious, just because it's been passed into law, that everybody immediately aligns their battalions behind getting all of the rules through and everything through so that the taps open and the money flows out, irrespective of whether it's smart or stupid activity. Uh, there are lots of different ways in which parts of it could accelerate through the system in the US, through the sausage making of government, since we're here at the Institute for Government. Uh, some bits of it can get through very quickly. Some bits can be slowed down by things like rules about additionality and rules about what's this and what's that and so on. So I'm sort of hoping that some of the stupider things don't ever actually happen. Mm. But it raises the question, of course, for the UK, and I'll hand back without you know, giving the long answer to that. What should our response be? Because if somebody wants to spend $60 making a, a million BTU of, of energy uh, and sell it to us for $2 or for $5 landed in Europe, maybe the correct response is, well, fine, we'll just take it. Mm. We don't have to do the same stupid things here. Mm. With that, I'll hand back to you. And just on, on that, that response question, there's then, because as you say, it's uncapped and it's quite open in terms of what the subsidies can be used for. So it raises the question about whether the UK has to sort of think harder about where its advantages are or, or sort of where it might fit into this global picture that's emerging. Oh, yes. I mean, without question, that was the, the other part is, is what should the UK do? And uh, so quite clearly, uh, I think we've got to use a very, very tight screen because what you actually see is, going back to the food supplement um, point, is that, in fact, this is still, you know, even if it's not 380 billion, even if it's, even if it's double that, triple that, quadruple that, it's still small compared to the US economy. And so we can spend an enormous amount of time, you know, analyzing IRA. But meanwhile, you know, without IRA, without anything, they created Tesla. And they created Redwood Materials, which is going to be the big recycling story. And they've got, um, they've got uh, Lanzatech doing biojet fuel. And they've got so many leaders in climate, despite having had you know, four years of, a, of an administration that had no particular interest, or in fact, an, an, an antipathy towards climate action. So that the general, I would say the most important thing that we need to have is the general health of our business environment is probably more important than everything that we can discuss today in this room, sorry. Mm. Um, and the second thing though is play to our strengths. We do have strengths, mm. but we have to be really honest about what they are. So are we good at finance? Absolutely. Are we good at uh, aerothermal engineering, you know, jet engines? Yes, absolutely. Are we good at electrochemistry? I mean, we used to, you know, we had the Rutherford labs and all the rest of it. Are we really going to be a battery 
sort of, you know, uh, world global leader. And are we good at manufacturing? High volume, low value manufacturing. We don't make flat screen TVs. We don't make iPads. We don't make, I mean, we make a few washing machines. We frankly, in the grand scheme of things, make a few cars. We're really good at designing cars. We're really good at materials. We're really good at IT, quantum computing, uh, machine learning, those sorts of things. Mm. So there are things we're really good at. We're really good, funnily enough, at welding. We are the world champions at really big scale welding, but we're rubbish at um, really big nuclear. We're very good at nuclear uh, for medicine and nuclear for, uh, for, for, for analytics and so on. We've got to be really honest about it. And the question is, what is truly strategic? Because is, manuf is mass manufacturing I think additive manufacturing we can be really, really good at, but is mass manufacturing even needed? Right? Why do we need to be good at it? So we have, to, we have to screen hard for what we actually are very good at and what we absolutely have to do. And I think that's where we should be intervening uh, actively. Um, but, but it's a much more limited set than yeah. you would find in the US IRA, which is very broad. We'll definitely come back to that point of what the, the government understands about what the, the UK's strengths are. Elizabeth, the EU has obviously been kind of dealing with the same exam question of sort of seeing what's going on in the States and working out what's it, its response. So can you take us into where that has got to and what the EU's thinking is on, on how it responds on this? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think to start out, I think it's interesting to see and think a bit about what have been the drivers, right, of, of the EU's sort of new wave of green industrial policy and I think the two key words there are competitiveness concerns and worries about basically replicating the dangers of import dependencies on single countries, Q, Russia, and natural gas in other value chains that are going to be critical for the, the green transition. So these have been sort of the two driving con uh, concerns competitiveness-wise, right? The, the worry that as the US rolls out the IRA, um, Europe might lose then on, you know, a, a new sort of boost to industrialization in the context of the green transition. And so that has been sort of what has boosted and I think what has motivated then this, this policy effort. Along, I think, with also a realization that the US on one hand, and of course sort of China historically, although in other ways, but have not been afraid of using carrots as well as sticks. Mm. Um, whereas perhaps you could argue that the EU climate policy approach has been perhaps heavier on the stick front, both market-based carbon pricing and regulatory. So that's a bit the motivation, let's say. Um, what are then the ingredients, right, of this uh, green industrial strategy? What's in it uh, at EU level? At least, let's say, four, I'd say, components and then the, the money. Um, Components-wise, there are indicative targets. I think it's important to, to, to say that they are indicative. They're not binding. They're sort of um, not hypothetic, but sort of there to, to, to give a, a vision and a, and, a, and a direction for basically the share that ideally domestic manufacturing at EU level would cover in terms of projected EU demand in key strategic clean tech sectors, mm -hmm. from solar to wind to electrolyzers to, to heat pumps. Um, the second ingredient is this effort to simplify permitting procedures that are key to them boost investment. The EU is very good at making things complex, as, as Michael was also uh, pointing out. So this is a bit sort of trying to undo, I guess, part of that and uh, encourage governments to simplify whatever is possible and then speed up uh, and, and, cut, and cut red tape to, to an extent. Um, a focus on skills, I think, is also a theme that we heard 
through the morning, so the, the, the realization and the awareness of the fact that you need to train important numbers of workers to actually feed into these industries that are not nascent, but like scaling up rapidly, and how, how to go about that in a way that, that matches the growth that we expect uh, in these industries. And also, particularly when we look at critical materials, so inputs into these industries, uh, also the, the, the realization that you need partnerships with other trade partners because it's, it's difficult to find domestically then things like uh, lithium, for example. And so how can you build trade partnerships that can sort of deliver inputs in, in the right quantities for the transition? Where's the money for all of this? Um, which I think is a, is a key question. Um, the, 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 the choice, let's say, has been the political choice at EU level has been to lean more towards the state aid uh, side of things. So giving national governments, giving EU member states as opposed to EU central level funding a greater role <coughs> in funding these, these efforts. And so what this means is that it's going to be larger member states with you know, more generous uh, fiscal space, uh, Germany and, and, and France first and foremost. Um, a greater possibility to actually support their, their industry, also through a loosening of the, the tight sort of strings attached to, 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 all, this, uh, to all this public support. Um, EU-level funds, I think, are notable for their scarcity in terms of what's being put, in terms of new funds on the table to, 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 to support this new wave of EU industrialization. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting to see how there's little new, of course, this comes into the broader scheme of things with the recovery funds still sort of happening on the ground in new member states that largely aligned with, with green industrialization. But from my perspective, I think uh, the, the lack of substantive amounts of new EU-level money mm. for this uh, purpose are a bit disappointing. That's yeah. really interesting. And in those larger member states, if we take Germany as the example, have they started, and we've heard a lot about this sort of big hydrogen plan over sort of 10 years and, and a large... Uh, sort of financial commitment, but have, have, have Germany and others started to define what they see as their kind of strengths and where, where they're trying to get to um, in, in those areas? Yeah, I think they're, they're certainly then thinking at national level, but you also see it sort of very basically through state aid support and, and subsidies being very concretely then uh, given out. I think the number that everybody has on their mind in Brussels these days is 10 billion. 10 billion is the amount of new EU-wide cash being put forward in what was supposed to be a sovereignty fund. And I think 10 billion is what Germany has offered Intel. Uh, so, you know, if that's the amount of uh, subsidization that, that you're putting on the table for a single industry, a single player, then I think that gives a sense of, mm. of the prioritization. Yeah. Joss, um, in the run-up to Green Day, uh, so this was back in March, I think you were sort of warning about the risk that the UK was sort of a bit behind this sort of in, in this global race, and there was a risk that we were going to sort of lose out on some of these green jobs. What did you make of the um, package that we saw there, and, and, and sort of what's happened here? I mean, I think we saw a kind of blizzard of consultations and re-announcements generally. I mean, there were some really significant new policies that are now pretty well advanced but now, as of this week, look like they're on the rocks again. So that would be the zero emission vehicle mandate, mm. which was designed to uh, give the auto sector and auto sector investors certainty that there would be a growing share of electric vehicle sales. And it was modeled on an approach taken in California. And it was, in, in a way, it was an example of the Treasury looking to use its regulatory powers to deliver big carbon reductions rather than doing it through mm. spending. That's um, been delayed or chopped? Well. 
front page of the Daily Mail a couple of days ago with briefings inside the paper from the business secretary you know, expressing disquiet about the plan. But I, I think generally if you see um, what was in the Prime Minister's announcements and what you see repeatedly through all of the announcements, um, going back you know, quite some years is in a sense um, uh, a refusal to kind of take the kind of choices that Michael was outlining in terms of deciding these are the areas that we're really, really going to focus in on and lean into. And so if you look at the work recently by the Resolution Foundation, the LSE, uh, looking at where the UK could have a comparative advantage, they mentioned the industries that Michael mentioned. They also mentioned CCUS and offshore wind. Well, I mean, every government now, I think for 20 years, has used every budget every year to announce a billion pounds for CCS, mm. and then it just never materialises. Mm. Um, and I think what sits you know, behind the, in a sense, this lack of um, strategic decision to just make some big bets and go all in and use all the levers available to the government mm. is, is that this is not fundamentally about just like taking an economically rational, mm. you know, where is our comparative advantage type approach. They're also thinking about the electoral geography and the politics, not least a year out from an election. So the auto sector is a great case in point where you have you know, jobs in Sunderland, jobs in the Midlands. Um, similarly, steel, you, you know, there's a national security case for why we might want to invest in our steel sector. Uh, there's also a very clear kind of electoral case, given where the actual steelworks are. Um, so these other questions are obviously coming into play alongside the, mm. the you know, where we might have a competitive advantage. Mm. But then I think if you look at the levers available to the government, you know, a big picture, the ones that you've been hearing about today in terms of investment as a proportion of GDP and where you target your investment, I mean, we're investing much less than France or Germany, let alone the US. Mm. I mean, the US, I think it's 5.2% of their GDP equivalent that they're investing. Mm. In, in Germany, it's about 2.5%. France, it's just under 2%. Here, it's around one, just over 1%. Mm. Um, and the government seemed quite determined to have a dividing line with the opposition on the investment question going into the election. But then you might think, OK, so what does an austerity net zero plan look like? You know, what are the alternative levers that you could pull there <laughs> that don't involve big investment? Mm. And one of the places you immediately turn to is planning. Mm. And we, we, you know, we keep hearing, you mentioned it, that Grant Shapps is looking to streamline planning. But I mean, again, this government's been talking about wanting to deal with planning reform for the whole time it's been in power. And uh, just a few months ago, there were reports that Gove and Shapps were finally going to do an agreement. And they were looking at how communities could benefit from projects and so on to stream, streamline these projects. You know, the energy bill comes back to the Commons next week and there's not much sign that there's going to be anything in it. And actually, the Sunday Observer just reported that the government has no intention of changing the rules around onshore wind. So we'll see if that's right. But then you pick an, another area, you know, apart from planning, you take, like, skills policy. We've seen work by Onward, the Think Tank, and also the Social Market Foundation looking at this, the gap in skilled labour that you would need to be able to deliver the projects. It's just huge. You know, you're talking about training hundreds of thousands of people every year for the foreseeable. Mm -hmm. So where's the skills package? Mm. Um, and you can kind of keep going through the list. And it, it, to some extent, it feels like the government's kind of backing itself into a corner in terms of the levers available to it mm. to compete in any one of these sectors. You know, take CCS, take offshore wind, take the auto sector, take steel, take whatever they decide to pick. Mm. Where is the evidence that they're looking to lean into regulation or tax 
you know, and, and the great success story that they would point to is the CFD framework and the growth of offshore wind. But you know, we've not done very well on the economic, capturing the economic benefits from offshore wind. And now you see the energy industry themselves saying inflation and competition with the US and the EU means that prices are going up by so much that the CFD strike price is going to have to go up. Right. And there doesn't seem much willingness on the part of the government to consider that, even though it will end up still being significantly cheaper than the wholesale gas price. It's interesting you mention that because that offshore wind example is one I think we heard it again this morning that sort of people say actually been very successful in driving investment but not so much in in sort of supporting UK industries. I think where we've got to now is on the latest CFD there has to be there's a rule around sort of 60% UK content or something something like that. So they're trying to sort of use that mechanism to drive a little bit more but perhaps too little, too late, and particularly when you look at some of the other challenges you've... And also in terms of certainty of the budget that actually sits behind this renewable spend, you know, we don't really have visibility, uh, there's no, and it's very unlikely the government would choose to do a spending review before the election, given the picture. Um, so they, they just, you look at the IRA and there's 10-year tax credits. Mm. In the UK, the relatively generous tax credits that have been, have been three-year tax credits. I think the ones in the EU are longer as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. More made a similar point this morning about the IRA running out to 2033. Um, Giles, if I can come to you, um, you've written a lot for us about good and bad industrial strategy, and yeah. you sort of worked on, on some of it yourself, sort of going back in history, but, but, but also sort of more recently. Um, what do you think are the lessons for green industrialisation? I mean, okay, but the first lesson I'd like to create, um, actually reflecting a little on Joss what Josh said there. I wish they'd stop thinking about electoral geography. I think if they could retrain the 20 or 30 spads who spend all their time trying to be clever with electrical geography as heat pump engineers, I could see an early, <laughs> an early win there because my longest standing, most enduring um, reflection on industrial strategy is it has no electrical impact at all. You can dole out pork barrel spending all around the country and still end up on 8% in the polls, as I remember very well. Um, so they need to do the right thing and hope that you get rewarded later. Would be a great start because trying to be too clever actually either with the economics or the politics can often lead to you being paralyzed and I think a lot of the very frustrating and eloquent um, statement you heard from Josh there is a reflection of that people trying to be too clever get it absolutely right first time and they'll never get to first time so I mean what are the lessons for us from the Biden thing I mean I've got the disadvantage of following some really fantastic great comments already but I'd say the first thing to say is the language of a race is one that politicians are very drawn to because they know the British people are very hot-blooded and love the idea of winning something. And so as a result of this, the whole industrial policy economic thing is, is expressed as if there's like a gate coming down or America has decided to suddenly start building a giant ship called Net Zero and it's, it's going to head out to space and we're too late to get to it and we're going to look really foolish. It's not like that. And in fact, the problem with climate change as a policy is it's a horrible coordination tragedy of the commons thing that you need everybody else to be joining in and when your biggest neighbor and friend suddenly starts joining in in such a hot-blooded way themselves that's great news I mean that's the number one thing even if I'm now going to pause slightly because of that incredibly colorful example that Michael gave about synthetic gas I didn't realize they come that mad but it's still far better than we've got the kind of Trump thing we're going to sit back and free ride on everybody else this is the opposite of free riding they're providing climate goods that we might be able to benefit from so number one is don't panic they aren't building a great big spaceship called net zero that's going to leave and we will miss our opportunity there isn't kind of a, a finite resource called the green jobs than if we don't get them 
then we're going to be left doing something else. Um, so num that's the number one thing. Fundamentally, that's very important. It's good news. Um, number two, we should, it's quite correct to absolutely boggle at the effect of what Biden has done. I mean, as Tom reflected there, I've been involved in industrial strategy on and off, and on and off is very much the emphasis, uh, since 2011 or so. And we so often get to the speech phase where the politician stands up and explains that he's not picking winners and it's not going to cost very much money and it really doesn't. I mean, the first industrial strategy we launched around 2012 had a line item of spending that was about the same as the beer duty cut that was announced the same day. That's about the impact of it. We don't go in full-bloodedly and Biden really, really has. And it's not just the, the size of the impact because that trillion is about, what, 4 or 5% of GDP. It's the fact that it's so quick. I was really struck reading the the FT in the morning, that you'd see companies restating their profit or loss already because of an act that passed last year. Whereas we will often do things like make a statement at the budget that we're going to do a thing. Two years later, the consultation on the thing is closed. <laughs> They've raised the money two years after that. And then finally, some sort of £50 million announcement is made. We are much more tentative and slow in this country. And we need to look at the technique they've used. Even if sometimes it looks like it produces some lunacy, it does produce action. And the slowness of the UK method is something that we should be much more curious about. Because again, a, a, a side effect of having so many special advisors trained in the humanities thinking about electoral geography is we don't think about operations and how to actually start getting things done. We don't tend to hire engineers or operations managers into government, and so we don't necessarily follow through. It often takes a real geek to go back and look up the gov.uk announcement from a few years before to see whether the thing that was announced actually happened. And um, it's, it's really one for the nerds, often, whether the actual announcement led to some kind of an action. And we really need to have a better system for that. Um, the third point I would say, everyone's right that we do need to choose that we're a much smaller economy. We're, I mean, the smaller the economy, the more naturally open it is as a matter of arithmetic. The US is a, a more closed economy. It can serve itself. It's a much larger universe. We have to choose. We have to choose what we're good at and not. We do need to use comparative analysis, you know, the comparative advantage analysis that we're quite used to doing. I would caution, though, that the politicians who are so keen on this, the most fundamental transformation to any economy that's ever really happened to the world economy, um, is they expect it to change what we're good at. They want dynamic effects too. They want to see that getting into something means you can get better at it. And the really inspiring stories of industrial strategy through the age, I mean, the one we're always taught, to, taught at MBA school is the way the Honda uh, company came into the US with these very cheap bikes and ended up just beating everybody, is they expect that scale and commitment and an early entry means you can change those, change those things you're good at. So that's a much more difficult analysis. But Sometimes we're going to have to get better at things that we're not good at. For example, those heating engineers. I mean, goodness knows how many we need. But it's not something that we can just buy in. We need the sort of services skills here. So we do need that skills plan. Um, and, and the final point I would make is, OK, we don't need to be clever about the electoral geography or so forth. On the whole, the voters just don't care. We're too centralised a system here. We don't vote on what happened locally and think it's down to some kind of local MP, I think. But we do need to be clever about the politics, and we do need to be worried about the politics, because we've had a remarkable period since 2017 where I believe the Conservatives got a real shock in that election for all sorts of reasons, but one of them was that the, the, the youth really hated them for seeming to be anti-green policies. It was a really... It was something, as somebody who wasn't a conservative, was sitting that side of the barrier, as it were. They were shocked at how people were motivated by environmental policies, particularly the young. 
stories about hunting bands and ivory bands and things like that really, really cut through. And we've gotten used to the idea that this has been won over, partly by the shock of you know, Boris Johnson moving from being a relative sceptic as a Telegraph columnist to a really powerful advocate. But we shouldn't take that for granted. The politics might get really, really difficult again. And we've done a lot of the easier things, the things that happen a long way from the consumer, the offshore wind plants, a long way away that just lead to you getting some slightly cheaper electricity. The, the really tough things are yet to come. So we do need to think really hard about the politics. And there we might learn a bit from how Biden has, is using it as something that, I think their phrase is sort of driving the economy from the middle outwards, mm. as something that's affecting social change. I think we need to start thinking about that language ourselves. Brilliant. Thanks, Charles. I'm going to throw it open to questions from you. I'm just going to ask one sort of quick-fire thing down the panel before I do. So we heard from Ed Miliband just before this, and he was talking about GB Energy, this kind of new creation as playing quite an important role in how Labour thinks it can tackle these questions. Giles, maybe I can just come back to you first. What, what do you think of this idea of sort of setting up a publicly owned energy company to sort of th think about some of these risky bets? Well, we, were we were chatting about this in the green room earlier, that you can do it... We set up a green investment bank in 2011-12, and it was meant to de-risk capital and get things moving a little quickly. If you do it in the way that's terrified of, free of distorting the free market, you won't really achieve very much. You might add a little bit of, you know, accelerate the, the maturity of certain financial products and get things moving a little bit, but um, you need something that powerfully does things that don't already happen. Um, and I think that's perfectly possible because there's an awful lot of very risky capital that um, is needed for, for, for some of the, the transformations we need. So I think it's probably a good idea. Um, it's, particularly in these inflationary times, it might have access to cheaper capital than is widely available in the markets. And it also produces this really valuable thing that has been missing, which is political commitment. So you see that GB Energy is in a particular market. You think, well, the government isn't going to cut it off at its knees by the next budget, but to removing the, the economic basis for this. So mm. I think as a tool of commitment and um, a, a source of potential cheap capital and expertise, it might end up being a good idea. Michael, just in the interest of fostering some disagreement on the panel, I know you're, you're well, not convinced. I would never be uh, controversial. I've got to be honest, I think it's utterly pointless. I can't see what it's supposed to do. Um, I do take the point about... Uh, sort of public displays of commitment, particularly in an environment where you know have had lots of on again, off again, or, or whatever policies. But you can do that through, you know, relatively modest amounts of financial investment. So you know, what, what, you know so that that's been done, that's tried and tested. Where you know, so for instance, the way we did um, uh, EV charging with small amounts of money that the Treasury doled out, that sort of meant that probably there wouldn't be huge policy handbrake turns. Um, the problem I have is that these things are all, first of all, they'll be small, they'll be a billion here, a billion there. We're talking, this is going to cost hundreds of billions over many decades. And so I'm not interested in anything that is a small, you know, not a small sort of single units of billions, to be quite honest. Um, but also, it's, uh, it's a way of not dealing with the elephant in the room, right? And there's a few of them which we've not, you know, uh, talked about. If you don't fix transmission, you know, if, you, if, if planning is seen as, oh, it's all about the politics of onshore wind and, and then they stupid and they banned it and they didn't and they unbanned it, we've got a real massive problem with transmission. Massive, right? Because the energy that we use is we're going to electrify two, three times more in the next couple of decades. And it's going to come from different places, offshore wind, onshore, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't come from the same place as our electricity comes from. And because it's variable, the ratio between peak and average is going up. 
right? So you've got more electricity from different places and the peak is becoming much bigger. And we're sitting here doing business as usual and then pretending that this can somehow be solved through GB Energy is completely ridiculous. It's just not going to happen. Mm. Um, so I don't know what problem it solves other than an emotional need to sort of be nasty to some energy companies, which is you know, very deeply felt, but is not actually going to move us uh, substantially forwards, I'm afraid. Okay, I'm sure it's an issue that we're, we're going to come back to. Um, let's open up some questions. If you're in the room next door and would like to ask a question, just come to the door in the time-honoured fashion, but put your hand up and, uh, and I will come to you who would like to ask a question. Yeah, I'll take one there, one at the back and, and one here. Williams, uh, shortly to be of the Aldersgate Group. Uh, I'm taking over from Nick Mollo there. Um, I'm really interested in the point about IRA and I strongly agree in some respects with the idea that um, we shouldn't worry about them going ahead. We can take the benefits of the cheaper resources that will flow in this direction. But that happens because companies choose to locate in the US for production purposes and not in, the, in Europe. Um, and I'm actually working at KPMG at the moment. I shouldn't say that in an event sponsored by Deloitte. But um, we work with a lot of global companies who are making choices about where to go. Um, they have a lot of factors to take into account in considering their decisions. And at the moment, IRA is... Um, very significant. Uh, so I think we're going to see a lot of production of all sorts of different low-carbon um, materials happening in the States and not in, not in Europe and definitely not in the UK. And, you know, does that matter? Okay. Column at the back. Just wait for the microphone. Uh, thank you. Uh, Colm from E3G. We're a, a climate change think tech. Um, just wanted to link something that uh, Michael was saying about the kind of ex extraordinary... Uh, scales and these link subsidies that are potentially quite bad value for money, but then also what Giles was saying about sort of UK policy making, slowness of method uh, and kind of lack of operational know-how. And it strikes me there's a trade-off there that to get that speed, you might need to worry a bit less about value for money across the entire piece. So just interested in institutionally, how can you do that within a system that is quite set up to think, first and foremost, don't waste this money? Uh, you know, can you balance that? within government. Thanks. I think there was one more down. Oh, yeah, sorry. Thanks. Thanks to the panel. Neil Mehta from Deloitte. Question is around the UK's role in the global net zero transition. Aside from picking winners on the technology front, does the UK have more of a role to be the partner of choice with the array of services needed for that transition? So if you think about the new giga projects, the cities, and the need for not just finance, but also the architects, the master planners, the legal frameworks, and all the expertise that the UK can export in that manner. Well, what more needs to be done to build on the success that we've had? Brilliant. Um, I might go in the other order. So, Giles, can I ask if you want to pick up any of those? Uh, yeah, I think, look, Rachel makes a fair point in that the very purest kind of economist line I took there. Sorry. Uh, the Economist is an excellent magazine, obviously, but um, that, that it doesn't really matter uh, because we can just sort of comparative advantage with David Ricardo and so on. It do, if there are finite things that we're fighting over and they get them first, that is a problem. And what you seem to have described, there's a finite thing, which is kind of company capital and attention, and it's going to go there. Um, and that is a really powerful um, counterexample to my sort of purist um, Panglossian view that it's all going to be absolutely fine. I don't know how to assess that question because it's... 
partly because it's so unfamiliar for us to be in a position of constrained resources. We've been battling with insufficient aggregate demand for so long that we've been saying just create jobs any way you can. And um, the idea that we might not have the capital here is, is a relatively new one. I just think it's very early to imply that companies doing well and prospering from someone else's generosity is somehow going to damage us would be a really unfamiliar thing. And what I'd hope is the, the learning and the skills they bring and the extra capital and profits they make can then be used for us too. But I do agree with you that if that happens too far, it, it's going to produce a real headache, yeah. Josh, do you want to pick up Colin Hall? Yeah, sure. I mean, on this point about losing jobs to other countries, I think it also just matters uh, hugely to the politics of the whole issue and the whole agenda. Um, you know, the reason why Labour are putting this at the centre of their offer going into the election is because they believe it's going to be an engine of growth for the economy, that it's going to create jo jobs, it's going to bring industry back to different MPs, constituencies and so on. And that's really like at the centre of why there's such a strong electoral coalition. But the same is true on the Conservative side. You know, we heard time and again from Kwasi Kwarteng and Boris Johnson that levelling up and net zero were two sides of the same coin. And so if you start to see, as we have already been starting to see, like a rival just moved 800 jobs, electric bus manufacturer to the US, already lost a battery factory to Europe, these stories are just going to start trickling through. I think a lot of investment's just going to wait to see which way it goes at the election because there's just so much uncertainty across the board. Mm. But um, it feels that it, I mean, to Giles's point about the broader fragility of the, of the electoral and political support for the whole agenda in policy terms, it really matters whether we manage to secure more of the jobs. Um, I just, just very quickly on the other questions, I mean, yes, on financial services and uh, other areas like that where we, the, the scale of the transition in other countries and the ability of the city of London and, and other parts of the UK economy to like help service the transition and the potential benefits for the UK from that is, doesn't seem to be in a sense a controversial, um, it doesn't seem to be controversial with anyone that we should have particular advantages in those areas. But I mean, to go back to the point around jobs, I mean, the local content requirements in the US are so strong, and the increasingly the content requirements in Europe are increasingly strong as well. So like, I don't know exactly how many of these sectors start to get impacted in that way, but there's definitely real risks. Mm. You were mentioning just before we came in that your ETF, you do some work on the sort of politics of climate in, in elsewhere in Europe, and whether you know, sort of voters, people are sort of starting to see the real benefits of that transition. I mean, how are those dynamics playing out in the different countries that you're, you're yeah, involved in? Yeah, I think it goes a lot to the point about investment as one of the tools in the box. You know, if you decide that you're going to try and deliver this through regulation and tax primarily, then, you know, let, when, once we take this down to the level of a household, what you're actually talking about, you're talking about saying you're just going to increase the tax on somebody's fuel bill, not offer them any kind of public support in terms of uh, public money to help them overcome the upfront cost to then benefit from the operational savings. Mm. I mean, the politics of that don't seem very sensible, and we've seen how that's played out in Germany in the last few weeks, where mm. the government tried to do precisely that. They told people they, they wouldn't be able to buy gas boilers anymore, um, that they would have to invest a lot of capital in getting a heat pump, and no, there wouldn't be any public support, and no, they hadn't done any distribution analysis of how this was going to play out, and surprise, surprise, didn't go down too well. Um, so I think when we're thinking about the levers available, the idea that you can just tax and regulate your way through the transition mm. without being prepared to invest 
at least some money in helping businesses and households overcome the upfront costs. It's, it goes to the heart of the politics. So, you know, it might, it might be that we can't copy and paste IRA, but we have a lot to learn from how the Americans built such a broad political coalition in a country that has historically been so skeptical. Mm. Mm. Elizabeth, do you want to pick up on? Yeah, I think the point on the speed of public support rollout and, and the value for using well public money was, was interesting because it points to, I think, one of the key dilemmas perhaps in how to design uh, industrial policy. And I think, you know, on, on one hand, you have the US IRA where the, the, the policy design is very straightforward, you know, tax credits, long time horizon, uh, very quick uh, rollout and, and sort of intuitive and simple for, for businesses to get a hold of. And on the other hand, you have um, the EU attempt, which is, on the other hand, that let's, let's try and focus on a smaller basket, perhaps, of, of technologies, <coughs> and let's attach uh, caveats and, 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 and sort of conditions to state aid, for example, access and, and matching aid particularly, which on one hand is sort of like, yes, you know, let's zoom in, let's, let's focus on the technologies that we think are key and that really need public support. But on the other hand, it's like, well, if you make it so complex, are you not sort of defeating the purpose of industrial policy in the first place? And this is still playing out, I think, at least that in, in, in the EU sphere. But I think it's one of those question marks that need to be solved for whichever government wants, wants to delve into this. I, I don't know that I have an answer, but I think it's interesting to see these sort of two competitive forces uh, play out here. Yeah. Michael, we've had an excellent question from Rick Parfit, who's watching online. I think Rick's at WWF. And he's asked, what is needed to solve the issues of transmission that Michael L. outlined? What would be your top three policy changes to tackle this? Um, the other one I wanted to throw in there as well is um, we've got an anonymous asking, who might be a civil servant, as Jill says, um, asking what role should the new Department of Business and Trade play in supporting green industries? I know you've uh, played some role as an advisor on, on the Board of Trade. Yeah, I have to be very careful, I might lose my, my, my unpaid job on the uh, Board of Trade. Um, so on, on the transmission, it's really tough. I mean, uh, my, first policy, my first policy prescription would be, actually, Giles, you nailed it, we need more STEM-educated people in government and right the way throughout. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary what we've got is a whole bunch of people who don't know, you know, uh, uh, an entropy from a Gibbs function and have never heard of, ed, of, of uh, exergy, and then and they're sort of designing an energy system, which is completely manifestly absurd, uh, and they are deciding that hydrogen will do this and hydrogen will do that, and they have no idea. Uh, if you ask them what is the density of, of liquid hydrogen, they look at you with panic in their eyes, uh, because they can vaguely remember what density was but they certainly don't have any clue what it might actually do for things like transportation of commodities and all those sorts of things. So we are woefully underskilled in, uh, in, in, in engineering, and that would be the first thing that we need to do across the board. I mean, even things like, you know, we have a law, 2005, you're only allowed to install a condensing boiler, right? Why do boilers condense? Does anybody really in this room even know why you need a condensing boiler, right? Maybe a few, but very, I guess the minority, right? And of course, what we didn't do, because it was a failure of government, was we didn't make sure that the condensing boilers were actually installed so they condense, which, by the way, saves lots of energy, right? So we've got this, you know, so the first prescription is we've just got to get absolutely serious in a way that, you know, maybe is a bit easier in Germany or maybe in China where, you know, there's just higher levels of STEM knowledge amongst, uh, amongst uh, politicians. Um, the other thing is the transmission, how to get transmission to be built um, 
we've got to, I think, I think the answer is, there's a couple of things I would say. One is strategic transmission corridors. You've just got to say, look, because the way it works at the moment is you, you, you sort of wait until somebody wants to generate power and somebody else wants to use power, and then you say, ah, we must have a consultation. Right, so you've waited for that project and that project. That takes, you know, that takes three years to develop and that takes three years and they don't quite overlap. So there's five years gone, right? Lots of lunches, don't worry. And then you go into a consultation, there's another five years and then there's another five years of building. Right, what we've got to say is, look, it's pretty damn obvious. We know roughly what the energy system, we're going to have to electrify more. We know we're going to get a lot of power from over there and we know we're going to have to deliver it over there. Or you know, we need some strategic decisions around things like, mm. are we going to do long duration storage using the hydrogen caverns, you know, let, we should be deciding that now so that we could build the transmission for that in 15 years. Um, if we wait 10 years to decide that, we will guaranteed not have it in time. But we need to do this sort of strategic um, thinking and, and then we need to, then we need to uh, execute. And the, the, the other idea, the third idea then is um, we probably need to work on de-bottlenecking, de- um, uh, monopolizing the national grid. Mm. But we'll, what we, there are certain things that you have to do centrally to ensure that the thing doesn't fall over. Some of it can be done through sort of protocols and rules and algorithms, um, but some of it has to be done through actually controlling assets. But most of what happens is connecting a wind farm to something or you know, building more capacity on this or that link. And you know, when you have people being told that you know, we love what you're doing and we can probably give you an electrical connection uh, by 2035 or, or whatever, then you have to say, well, sorry, can anybody in this room do it faster? Mm. Why does it have to take that long? What is the, what is the bottleneck? Is it, you know, is it the consultation? Is it the number of engineers? Is it the supply chain? And we've just got to, you know, competition is actually fantastic at short-circuiting that stuff, but you have to actually have the, the structures in place to allow that. Um, and so I think those are the things. STEM skills overall, um, the, the strategic understanding and the ability. You know, and, and it's not just strategic understanding and consensus. It's actually also, though, um, from a regulatory perspective, um, just saying we will go ahead and build and we, don't, we may not know quite how we're going to get it paid for. So the government is going to have to just kind of underwrite and then figure out how to recoup through, you know, because you may not know whose regulatory asset value it goes on to, right? But you're going to have to do it. Um, the, trade, yeah. the trade question as well. Trade. So, yeah, so how was the trade question phrased? Let me think. It was, oh, well, it was, it was a question about business and trade uh, department. So there's, a, there's a, some things that I found very odd. I'm also um, I'm looking at some of the people I've been working with uh, at, at Des NZ very closely. I'm on the government's um, energy efficiency task force where I've been uh, asked to lead up on industrial. And uh, they will know that one of the things I'm mystified by is the who does what in government in the UK. Because... Um, you know, what exactly business and trade does on energy when you've got a department called Department of Energy and Net Zero, but then you've got other people at DEFRA doing energy. And what's fantastic about all this is I go to a building on Victoria Street, which used to be, first it was, um, first it was the DTI, I'm that old, and then it was um, DEC, then it was Bayes, and now it's DESNZ. But I do, so I don't quite... The, 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 the answer, actually, on trade, let me, just, let, me, let me answer a slightly different question than what, de, the, what the Department of Business and Trade should do. We are 
we're all technocrats here, right? We're all left-brain technocrats, and we love this stuff, and we get really into it. But, you know, Jeff Goldblum, you know, in, in um, uh, what is it, Jurassic Park, says, you know, life will find a way. And, you know, humans and trade and stuff will also find a way. So we think that because the IRA says, build your factory in the U.S., that that means that, you know, all companies will run the same spreadsheet, they'll all move to the U.S., they'll all do the exact same thing, and they'll all succeed. That's not the way it works. And with trade, you know, the fact is that, you know, if anybody thinks, well, we're going to have a battery factory in country X, and that means they've won and everybody else has lost, you get the anode from one place, you get the cathode from one place, you get the electrolyte from one place. You get, these are all globally traded commodities. And when we have sanctions against Russia, we can't even stop them buying our chips, our goods, our, you know, our, you know et cetera. So this is, the reality is gonna be much, much messier. Um, and the trade, that's good news, right? Because trade will find a way of getting around all the distortions that are introduced by IRA and the EU response if it ever actually materializes in anything that's of any scale. And, and that's really, really important. You cannot build an electric car without a supply chain that touches 50 countries. And the same with a, with a wind turbine and the same with a, maybe a little bit less so, with a, with a solar panel. So the answer is what should, what should the Department of Business and Trade be doing is make, uh, no, make sure that we can trade, keep things open. All of these local content rules, all they do is push up costs. Right? They are not good things that we should emulate and try and do. 60% of local content for wind turbines means expensive wind power in the UK. It's as simple as that. So the Department of Business and Trade, you know, I personally believe in quite good hands with somebody who really is committed to free trade above, you know, ab above trying to use trade to sort of land this, you know, um, the, 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 you know on a you know, particular climate uh, net zero technology. Mm. Okay, um, we're going to have to draw it to a, a close there because we're up on time. Thank you all so much for coming. It's been a brilliant day of discussions. We've covered an awful lot of ground with all of our speakers. Uh, I think a really clear call for a kind of need in the UK for more long-term certainty, whether we're trying to sort of drive public or private investment. We've had a lot of discussions around the kind of best processes for delivering that, around consultations and how long those are taking and, and many other things. Um, so thank you for all of that. Um, uh, so this is going to be a, a sort of prominent debate in the run-up to the election, and IFG is definitely going to be commenting on that, so, so look out for that. Um, thank you uh, to everyone for coming in person and for those in the overflow room. Uh, thanks to those watching online. Uh, and thank you very much to Deloitte once again uh, for sponsoring it and making it possible. And finally, thanks to this brilliant panel. <laughs>